Children are dismissed ages 3 through 8. Go downstairs. I think Crystal is going to be teaching you this morning. So go on down there and we'll see you a little bit later. I want to remind everybody, I think I totally skipped over the Home Builders uh, Chili Cook-Off. It's, I, I forgot to announce that. I, I hope you already know about it. If you're in the competition, you you would already know about it. But we're going to be going over to the Family Center right after this service to compete. And I'm going to... Wo- you know, I'm going to whoop up on you guys. Um, Josiah and I came up with something that was tastes awesome. And we're not going to let the judges know which one is mine because I know they're scared. So, <laughs> but anyway, I guess you better make sure you're ready to die today, huh? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> All right, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. Now we're gonna we're looking forward to a great time of uh, fellowship with our home builders and uh, time of competition, but also main, mainly some fellowship. And if you are in that category of not being in the youth group and not being in the 50 plus, come anyway, even if you're not competing and enjoy some good chili. I know there'll be some there. Okay, Nehemiah chapter seven. There was a man who uh, bought a white mouse for his pet snake at the store and came home and. Uh, put it in the cage with the snake. And when the mouse was uh, put into the aquarium there, the snake was asleep in, in a roundabout way uh, there in the sawdust. And as the mouse was in there, he saw the snake and was terrified. Of course, he was stuck in there, so he tried to act quickly as he could, and he started, um, you know, shoveling the uh, sawdust on top of the snake that was asleep. And so after a while, the snake was completely buried in sawdust. And after the mouse was frantically covering up uh, the snake with sawdust, and he was completely buried, he couldn't see that snake anymore, he finally relaxed. Do you think that's a wise thing to do? <laughs> no, of course, that snake was asleep and it might have been under the sawdust, but it still was there. It was still a threat. And the same is true for you and me. Sometimes we feel like after we have served the Lord so many years and we've experienced a number of victories as a Christian, we don't see Satan anymore. You know, we don't see him really going against us and resisting us as much. But we are fools like that snake. We're just as silly as that, excuse me, that mouse to think that the serpent is still not there. He's still there. And he can, he can rise at any moment. And we are in danger. And the same was true for the people of Israel that we've been studying there in the city of Jerusalem with the people with Nehemiah. They have been experiencing victory after victory. And uh, reminded me of a quote I heard from Andrew Bonar. He's with the Lord now, of course. He was a preacher in Scotland. said this, Let us be as watchful after the victory as we are before the battle. Let us be as watchful before the victory as we are before the battle. A lot of times we relax spiritually and take it easy as Christians. Maybe because of past victories, we rest on our laurels of what we have won in the past. But any good business person knows that if you have a good season or a good crop for you farmers, you don't just rest there, right? You are back investing in the field. 
for the future, right? You are trying to, especially in the business world, uh, you are looking out to counter your competition. And just because you may have had a profit one year doesn't guarantee you're going to have a profit in your business the next year. Depends on how well you compete against your competitor. And the same is true in the Christian walk. Satan and spiritual battles still exist today. And when we relax spiritually and take it easy as Christians, Satan can easily get a foothold in our lives. Your watchfulness as a Christian is the key to persevering for the Lord. And that's what Nehemiah was concerned about here for the people that were living in Jerusalem. You must live with vigilance for the Lord. And what I mean by vigilance for some of the kids there is to watch carefully for the possibility of dangers or difficulties that may come up as you're serving the Lord. That's what that word vigilance means. That you would watch carefully for dangerous uh a possibility of dangers or even difficulties, and that you would be on your guard. Warren Wiersbe has said this, every Christian ministry is one short generation away from destruction, and God's people must be on guard. I believe that's true for even First Baptist Church, that we're just one short generation from destruction. If we're not investing in our young people, but even we as Christians are not on our guard where Satan can come in and have a foothold. Now, here in the book of, Jer- of Nehemiah that we've been studying, chapters 1 through 6 have been primarily dealing with rebuilding. And in chapter 2, you know, Nehemiah, the people, uh, Nehemiah says, um, actually, people say, let's rise and build or rebuild. And that's really been the theme of chapters 1 through 6. Now that we're at chapter 6, it's kind of transitioning for the rest of the book, arise and protect. Okay, arise and rebuild, but now you need to arise and protect what has been accomplished. And what should you watch carefully for? Verses 1 through 1 and 2, carefully watch the direction of God's work. Nehemiah says this, Now it came to pass when the wall was rebuilt, And I had set up the doors and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God above many. Here in in verse 1 it says that the wall was rebuilt. And it says that in chapter 2 the reason why they rebuilt the wall is so that they would not be a reproach anymore. Uh, When they rebuilt this wall, we read in the last chapter that the enemies of Israel, the enemies of Jerusalem, saw how quickly they rebuilt the wall by God's grace, 52 days, to to rebuild, to build this humongous wall, or rebuild it, technically. And 52 days, and the people that were surrounding them realized it was a work of God. They realized it was a work of God, and God's name was being exalted. And as we Christians are serving here in Akron and other communities, we need to be faithful in investing in the work of God and rebuilding the work of God. And we've been talking about different aspects of that in chapters 1 through 6. But the whole object is so that God would receive the glory. Okay? That His name would be exalted. That Christianity and the gospel message would not be a reproach. 
And so the people must have been encouraged when the wall was rebuilt. But then it says that the doors had been set up. And that wasn't the case in chapter 6. But now the gates are closed. They, the gates have been uh, hung up. They have been set up. And there is no more vulnerability for the people, for the outsiders to come in through those gates. And so the people must have felt secure. Right? So they're encouraged. They feel secure. And then Nehemiah assigned these men in verse 1. The porters, the singers, and the Levites were appointed. Now, I have to tell, I have to admit, when I was studying this passage, I was thinking they were appointed to the service of the temple. Porters were the gatekeepers to the temple. The singers, of course, sang in the temple for the different sacrifices and feasts that they had. And then the Levites were basically the people that would carry the altar and they would set up things in the temple. They were basically assistants to the priest. Okay? And when they had the tabernacle, where they were responsible for taking down the tent and carrying it and reassembling it. Okay, So that was kind of their job, and they were assistants to the priests. And I was thinking, well, I guess Nehemiah is appointing them back to the service, but if you look at Ezra, the, the book of Ezra, you see that that already took place. They've already been reappointed. They've already been in service. So what is he talking about? I believe that he's talking about, you know, with the wall being rebuilt, the doors and the gates being hung, uh, excuse me, the doors being hung on the gates, sorry, that and being set up, that these people were guarding the gates. And that normally wasn't their job. So he, and why did he do that? Do you remember last week's message? We talked about how to handle personal attacks and what kind of people was the devil using to personally attack the leader there in Jerusalem? It was a lot of people within the city, wasn't it? It was some people that Nehemiah found out he could not trust. But the porters, the singers, and the Levites, he could trust. And he put them at the gates of the city. Why? Because they had a vested interest in the protection of the worship of God, the vested interest in protecting the temple, that it would not be invaded, that it wouldn't be profaned. And so they want to keep the outsiders out. They want to keep these enemies of God out of the city. And so Nehemiah puts his trust in these men. And history has taught us that trusted guards are so important. When the Bakums were here, our missionaries to China, they didn't mention this, but they did refer to the Great Wall of China. Uh, I have heard that the Great Wall of China has been penetrated or overcome at least four times in history and uh, been, uh, as armies have gone in to attack China. And every time that the wall has been overcome, it's because the guards at the wall have been paid off. Okay, They were bribed. And uh, Nehemiah saw this as a very important thing, that the gates are only as good as the ones that are guarding them. And so he put trusted men in place there. However, his problem wasn't finding good gatekeepers. His biggest problem was finding leaders that he could trust. We see here in in verse 2 that he appoints new leadership. Now, it came to pass when all this happened, when the wall was rebuilt, the doors were set up, and these people were stationed at the gates, that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, or the commander of the fortress there for the temple, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God above many. Finding trustworthy leadership is very difficult at times. And did Nehemiah already run into some leaders that he couldn't trust? 
Last week we uh, specifically highlighted how two personal attacks on Nehemiah came from two groups of leaders there in Jerusalem. First, the prophets. I think it was Shemaiah that came and he was trained to get Nehemiah to hide in the temple and be a coward because the enemies were coming that night and he was trying to lead Nehemiah to be a coward and to have that reproach brought upon him so that the people would not follow him. And he didn't fall prey to that, but it's, it's exposed there in chapter 6 that it wasn't just Shemaiah, but it was also um, a prophetess involved and it was other prophets involved. The prophets of God were actually against Nehemiah. This group of people that were responsible, responsible for declaring the Word of God. That's what prophets did. And they were corrupt. And they were against the godly leadership of Nehemiah. So he saw, and it says in chapter 6, that these prophets were paid off by Sambalat and Tobiah, two enemies of, of the Jews there in Jerusalem, and they, and they were both opposing the fact that the wall was being rebuilt. But they were paying off this, this prophet. And then also the nobles at the end of chapter 6, the nobles of Judah, the tribe of Judah, the kingly tribe, the tribe of uh, David, and the, the one that the Messiah would come through. These nobles were sinners just like us, and they were greedy, and they were selfish. And it says there in chapter 6, they were sworn unto Tobiah. It means that they were loyal to him. Their priorities were wrong. And so Nehemiah, as he now that the wall is rebuilt, the doors are hung up, he realizes that he needs to put some new leadership in place because he's not going to be there forever. He's going to go back to Persia. So he needs to entrust the protection and the direction of this work, God's work, to faithful men, to godly leaders. And we see here the quality of a godly leader. The truth is, is that every thing rises and falls on leadership, and we have seen that in the past eight years in America, haven't we? And actually, specifically, and even beyond that. But leadership is so important. What kind of leaders did Nehemiah appoint to lead the work of God there? Ones that were concerned about God's work? He's talking about his brother Hanani. He's the one that was burdened for the work, who went all the way to Susa to meet Nehemiah when he was serving King Artaxerxes I and said, oh, you should know how bad it is in Jerusalem and how it's such a reproach to God's name and the walls aren't rebuilt and so forth and so on. He was concerned and burdened for the Lord's work. That's the kind of leaders that we need. And then also, one's considered trustworthy. Hananiah was considered trustworthy. Why? Because he was faithful. He was faithful. That means that he was loyal or he was, he, was faith, he was consistent in carrying out God's will. That's what we're talking about is God's will here. He was consistent in carrying out God's will. And that's the kind of leaders that we need in charge and leading God's work are faithful, faithful leaders. Paul wrote to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and it says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. I was so burdened when Mr. Bauckham was here, our missionary to China, as he talked about the importance of discipleship in the local church. 
that we are equipping one another. Sunday school teacher, parents, me. We need to be all invested in discipling others in the church because we're one short generation in this ministry from destruction. We need to be investing our lives in discipling not just our young people, but one another. Equipping one another by the Word of God to do the work of the ministry according to Ephesians chapter 4. And so, they were faithful men who were discipling others. My application to you all is how faithful are you in discipling others? How faithful are you as a servant of Christ in the work of God? We need to be concerned about the direction of First Baptist Church. And it's not just the leaders, but also the families of the church and the leaders of those families. Men, are you, what, how, what is the direction that your family is going? Uh, are you being faithful as a man of God to lead your family according to the revealed word of, will of God that's in His Word? I think this is a very appropriate application for you and me that we as men are men of God. That we're praying for our families. We're concerned about the direction of our family. We're concerned about our children that they would grow up to love and serve God. Amen? Okay, I, I hope you are. Or I'm concerned about the direction of this church. You know, we, we need to be concerned about the faithfulness of the leaders in this church and the faithfulness of me as well that we would be faithful in carrying out God's will, but also we see that Hananiah feared God above many. And what that means is that he was submissive to God's will. Not only did he carry out God's will, but he was submissive to God's will. example of this in history is John Knox, preacher in England in the 1500s, I believe, as he stood up against Bloody Mary, Roman Catholic Queen of England, and her slaughter of Bible-believing Christians. Uh, he was committed to the preaching of God's Word, and as a preacher, he was not identified by the, by the government as being a legitimate preacher, okay? because he was consi- considered a dissenter. But uh, when he died and on his grave, there is an inscription that describes his life as a man who feared God above many. That inscription says, He feared man so little because he feared God so much. He feared man so little because he feared God so much. And that's the type of uh, leaders that we need to have in First Baptist Church. That's the kind of pastor you need. That he would preach and not be afraid of what men think. About what others think. But he would be faithful in preaching the Word of God. We need faithful Christians and leaders who fear God They care about the direction of the Lord's work. And so, practically speaking, I encourage you to pray for me. That I would be faithful. I'm a sinner saved by grace just like you. Amen? (laughs) I didn't get any amens. You guys really have put me on a pedestal here. Okay. Well, anyway, don't do that. (laughs) I'm a sinner saved by grace. And pray for me. I need your prayers. That I would be faithful. That I would fear God. But also pray for our church leaders. Pray for our teachers that they would be faithful in their lives before the people of our church, the ones that they're teaching, but they would also fear God and they would teach honestly what God's Word says and not what is going to be popular in class or what's going to please or tickle someone's ear. 
we need to consider the direction of our own households. I've already made that application. And we need to get involved in making disciples for Christ and making sure and watching carefully the direction of this work. We need to make sure that the church has godly leadership. I'm not going to live forever. There's going to be a day that I die, and I'm planning on dying here unless the Lord moves me elsewhere, unless you, unless you move me somewhere else. <laughs> we won't go into that possibility. But uh, I'm, not, I'm very happy here. I love being at First Baptist Church. People ask me, do you like it in Akron? I say, I love being in Akron. Do you like it at First Baptist Church? I love the people at First Baptist Church. And I love preaching here, and I love living here. I love you guys. I've grown to love you guys very quickly. And... Um, but there is going to be a time in the future where I'm not going to be here. And I hope that the church will watch over what kind of leaders they'll allow to come into this church. That you would make sure that, you know what, do you, I'm going to give you a copy of our Constitution. Do you believe this? And if, you, and if they come in here and they start changing things, and they start going against that Constitution, you say, you just fired yourself. Goodbye. See ya. Because you said you agreed with our Constitution, our statement of faith. We need to watch and care for the direction of the Lord's work. Second of all, carefully watch the boundaries of the Lord's work. Verse 3, And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot... Excuse me, I'm I'm reading chapter 6, sorry. Verse 3 of chapter 7, And Nehemiah said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot. And while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one and his watch and every one to be over against his house. Now, what's going on here is he is making and creating boundaries for the city of Jerusalem. He's actually locking them in. Uh, we are, someone mentioned yesterday about the borders that a lot of our Republican uh, presidential candidates are talking about walls to be built up and everything. And, you know, that person says it's one thing to build a wall to keep people in, but there's um, another thing to build a wall to keep the bad people out. And uh, this, is not a, this is not what Nehemiah is doing. He's actually trying to keep the people in. He's trying to protect them. He's trying to watch over them. But I guess he's also trying to keep out people too. So it's two-sided. It's kind of a, com- a very appropriate illustration today, isn't it? But anyway, he limits access to the city. How does he do that? He only allows the gates to be open while the sun is hot. So I'm imagining... It doesn't say in the text, but this is the the I won't even say, okay the ASV the Acker Standard Version. Okay, so we have the uh, mid morning is really where the sun is kind of getting bright. I was joking about the ASV. Okay, all right. Uh, so we got 10 a.m. You guys are still wondering what did he just say? 10 a.m. to about 3 p.m. I guess would be the hottest parts of the day. Uh, you farmers may know more of a restrictive time, but that's when the sun's going to definitely be up. You know, and I imagine they probably opened up the gates between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. And so uh, any other time it was closed so that the people were down. So it was a citywide curfew. Kids hate curfews, don't they? I think people in town, in cities, they hate curfews too when you close them in. That's exactly what they were under. That's the situation we're talking about here. A citywide curfew from 3 p.m. in the afternoon to 10 a.m. the next morning. People were locked in and they had to keep the gates shut and barred. And they set up a neighborhood watch. If you look at verse 3, it says that they appointed watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, everyone in his watch and everyone 
to watch over against his own house. So that's a neighborhood watch, people. All right. So it's neighborhood watch, citywide curfew. The gates are shut and barred. And you know the problem that you know we see here in our own human nature is we resist people putting rules over us. We resist people putting boundaries on us. And uh, I thought about this. I heard this story this week. Uh, times escaping us here, but it was a young boy named Martin who was at home with his mom and dad, and he uh, wanted to go out and play. And before he, uh, he he asked his mom, Mom, can I go out and play? And she says, have you done your homework yet? And he says, no. And he says, well, of course you can't go out and play. Uh, you need to go do your homework first, but before you do, go feed your, your dumb bird. You still haven't fed Pepe, your bird, in the other room. Go ahead and take care of that first. So, um, you know, Martin's all mad. He's just so ticked off. He's like, man, I just hate rules. Rules just make my life miserable. And he just stomps in the other room. And he comes in there where Pepe is. And he opens up the birdcage. And he's about to, you know, put, replenish the food and stuff. And then Pepe starts fluttering all over the place inside the cage. And he ends up, you know, Martin's trying to shield his, himself. And, and Pepe, the bird, flies out. Well, Pepe lands on the coffee table, and Martin is so terrified as he looks at his bird because there's a furry tail rising behind the bird on the other side of that coffee table. And before Martin could do anything, he starts lunging for his bird, but the cat pounced on him, and he gets him finally away from the cat, but after he checks on Pepe, he is dead. He couldn't do anything. He died. And you know, Martin learned a lesson that day that boundaries and rules are very important. You know, Pepe the bird had that cage and that was his boundaries, right? That kept him within a safe place where the cat couldn't get him. But when he wanted to be free and he just, you know, shunned these boundaries and these rules that were placed upon him, he put his life in danger and he ended up being killed. And rules are given... You know, and I know every parent's going to say this, rules are given for your good and for your protection. But it is true. It is true. That, you know, boundaries are good. Even for the Christian, and boundaries are good for the Lord's work as well. Here in the ministry of First Baptist Church, we have a statement of faith. We have a constitution. Uh, We have bylaws that we abide by. Why do we do that? Because we need boundaries. Now, if you ever read our Constitution, which you should have if you become a, became a member of this church, you should know what this church believes and how it functions. I'm sure you read it, and there was probably something in it that was worded wrong. You know, our statement of faith is not infallible, right? Because people wrote it, not God. Do you, get, you agree what I'm saying? It's based on the infallible Word of God. But, you know, we as people, we, we make human documents like a statement of faith, the Constitution bylaws, child protection policy, all right? We have that kind of thing that just came up. You know, those things are not infallible. <laughs> we know because, you know, especially the child protection policy, I, we just updated it and I had a hand in it, so it's definitely not infallible. Uh, but, you know, why do we do those kind of things? Because we're trying to protect the integrity of this ministry. We're trying to protect the... Um, integrity of God's work. And that's exactly what Nehemiah was doing. He was trying to keep the enemies out by closing these gates in uh, to protect the people. And the uh, application for you and me, 
uh, from the life of Nehemiah is we need to create boundaries in our life. That's okay. That's not a bad thing. We need to create boundaries in our life. Um, and man, that application can be multifaceted. We need to create moral boundaries based on God's Word, but also we need to have boundaries in our life where we're not, we're not enablers to people either. You know? And we, can, we, we need to set down some boundaries as well. Uh, they, they protect these boundaries. They protect the integrity of your Christian testimony. They protect the integrity of your home. Do you have uh, rules at home? We have rules at our house. You need to have rules as parents. You don't need to raise your kid by trial and error. You need to set up rules that are not infallible, but they are based on the functional, the function of your home and teaching the Word of God to your, to your kids. They protect the integrity of this ministry, of our, as I already mentioned. So how important are boundaries to you? You think about a soldier. Soldiers have rules and they have boundaries. And when they go AWOL, they are in big trouble. You know, when they uh, go contrary to the rules and the commands that they have and they're missing uh, without leave, uh, they are in trouble. And we need to remember that we are soldiers of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we relax and we take it easy. And But we are in spiritual battle. We have a real enemy that wants to destroy us and our testimony. Okay, now you see at the end of chapter 7, there's 73 verses. We are not going to read all 73 verses today. And we're just going to highlight a couple of these. Uh, and I'm going to try to finish this sermon here in the next five minutes. Um, number three, carefully examine your life in the Lord's work. Let, look at verse four. This is key to the rest of the chapter pretty much. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not builded. And my God put it into my heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of them which came up at the first and found written therein all these people from verse 6 all the way to verse 69. Okay, uh, I'm not going to list all those out, but they're kind of listed by leaders who came with Zerubbabel. Then the people, the different families, it says children of, children of, children of. It's all separated by families. Then you got the Levites, the singers, the porters, uh, Solomon's servants, all those. They're all organized by these different groups, and I really don't have a message based on that organization. But what I want you to focus on is verses 4 and 5. What Nehemiah is doing is he sees a need for the people to live in the city. He sees a need for them to have houses. The houses are broken. They've been, they were destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar invaded. So... He sees that he has some problems. He sees that he has some responsibilities to take care of. And the same is true for you and me. When we're in the Lord's work, part of being personally vigilant uh, as a Christian is to examine your own life and look at the spiritual problems in your own life. And if you're not taking time to examine your own relationship with the Lord, you're going to totally neglect that and you're going to give a foothold to Satan. Okay, we need to not neglect our spiritual problems, our own spiritual problems, and our own spiritual responsibilities. And uh, the whole reason why Nehemiah does this consensus, which God had him do, by the way, it wasn't a selfish thing, it wasn't a sinful thing. He did it, his purpose was to eventually repopulate the city. We're going to see that in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. We're not going to look there today. But he, that's what he ends up doing, based on that census. 
Okay, but in the meantime, while they're doing this census, this time of examination, looking at the family records of who you're related to, what land you own, people realize that they don't have those records. They realize that they can't prove their ancestry. Some of those Jews, some of those people were the common people in verses 61 and 62. These people could not prove who they, you know, who their family was, and so they were not given land. Okay, they were not given their family's land because they could not prove their birthright. The priests were the same way. You were a priest in the nation of Israel by your family, by heredity. Here is a hereditary thing. Okay, there you know. But anyway, it was handed out by generation by generation in that family and that tribe of the of the tribe of Levi and Am, the family of Amram, okay, uh, for the priests. And so this was a time of personal examination. That's what I'm getting at. All right, do you see that? It was a time of personal examination, and these people realized that they were not, they did not have the records that they should have. And a part of personal vigilance is self-examination, and you must take time to take heed to yourself. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul wrote this very thing to a young preacher named Timothy in Ephesus. He said, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. The fact is, you're going to one day stand before the Lord, and only God and know only God and you know who you really are. Are you a child of God? These people couldn't prove that they were children of Israel. Are you a child of God? I hope that you're not basing your salvation on a parent or a baptism or in your good works or your career or your morality. Salvation according to the Word of God is only faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? I need to hear some amens on that one, okay? Salvation is based only on faith in Christ. Good. Great. And uh, that's what uh, the Gospel is all about. Only God and you also know how you really are as a Christian. And are you living according to God's will? Verses 70 and 73, carefully watch the funding of God's work. I'm not trying to get money out of you, but it is here in the Word of God. Um, It just happened to be on this week that we were finishing up Faith Promise Missions. Uh, It says, And some of the chief of the fathers gave unto the work. The the Tershatha, which is the governor, who is Nehemiah, he gave to the treasure a thousand drums of gold, 50 basins, 530 priest garments. Okay, so Nehemiah leads the way in giving to God's work. Uh, and some of the chief of the fathers gave to the treasure of the work 20,000 drums of gold and 2,200 pounds of silver. And that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 drums of gold, 2,000 pounds of silver, and six, let's see, got... Um, 67, three score and seven, 67 priest garments. So you see here that the leadership sets the example in giving to the Lord's work. Then the nobles and these leaders, they accept Nehemiah's leadership and they give as well. And then in verse 72, the people are obligated and they join in and invest in the Lord's work. So the priests and the Levites and the porters and the singers and some of the people and the Nethanims, which are the ones who drew water temple servants there, all Israel dwelt in their cities, and when the seventh month came, 
the children of Israel were in their cities. My point is, is that a lot of times we look at our resources that God has given us and we say, that's mine. That's mine. Like my two year, like my four year old. That's mine. You know? And we're kind of like that, but the reality is God words, God's word teaches us that what we have, God has given us. Amen? What we have, God has given us, and we have the responsibility to use God's resources to fund His work. And so I challenge you to be spiritually vigilant in funding the work of God. But, and you do that by using the resources God has given you. And it's not just about money. How about time? The New Testament says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. How are you prioritizing your time? Is it for eternal things or temporal things? How about your possessions? You know, God's given you that house. God, you know, how are you using it for the Lord? God's given you that car. How are you using it for the Lord? How are you using your family? God's given you a family. How are you using your family for God? Are you investing prayer in your children? Are you serving together in the ministry or is it just your children and you're sitting back saying, oh, that's so good for them? How are you using your money for God? The money God's given you. Uh, I'm not going to harp on this anymore, but the issue at hand in Nehemiah chapter 7 is that we tend to relax spiritually and take it easy and we forget that Satan is still here. He wants to destroy the work of God here in Akron. He wants to destroy First Baptist Church. We have such a great heritage of being centered on the Word of God and giving out the Gospel. I meet people who have been in our Awana ministry. But you know what? We're only one short generation of that all being washed away if we're not spiritually vigilant. And you must be on your guard. And how do you do that? You watch carefully over the direction of the Lord's work. You watch carefully over the boundaries in the Lord's work. You watch carefully over yourself in the Lord's work. And you also watch carefully over the funding of God's work. Four different areas of what you need to be watching out for in the Lord's work in order to be spiritually vigilant and persevere for the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this passage of Scripture. Um, A lot more could have been said. But Lord, I hope that Your Holy Spirit has said it. And Lord, I pray that He he has worked in hearts. And Lord, if there are some Christians in here that are resting on their laurels, they're, you know, oh, I'm so, you know, I I led so many people to the Lord back back, way back then, but they're not doing it now. Pray that they would uh, respond to Your Word and they'll get busy uh, back again in the Lord's work. And Lord, if there had been some, they're just taking it easy because they've accepted Christ as their Savior. They have their fire insurance, but they're not living for You. Pray that You would convict them, that they would step up and they would take a stand for Christ and that they would um, watch carefully for the enemy draweth nigh and wants to destroy them. Did you pray for ones in in our midst today that as I was talking about the Gospel of Christ, they realized that they have been putting their faith in some other object besides Jesus Christ and Him alone, trying to get to heaven on their uh, own works or on the coattails of someone else. I pray, Lord, that they would respond to the Gospel and accept Christ. We pray, Lord, that Your people would respond. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.